Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out, opening up to Judges chapter 13. Mm, my Bible's not here. We don't do pranks in church, guys. feel sorry for whoever has to listen to this online. Judges chapter 13. Guys, in an effort to be well-read, I try to read fiction. I try. And sometimes I succeed. But it has always been a struggle for me. Of the reading of books, there is no end. And I, I just have a hard time getting lost in a make-believe world, when I could just as easily explore the real world, which is, in my opinion, infinitely more fascinating. I can study cellular biology, or I could read about elves and nymphs. I could study World War II, or I could read about ghouls and goblins. I could study theology, or I can read a book about talking trees and wizards and warlocks which I know you would say is really a book about theology. If you know, you know. If I had to choose one non-theological genre of literature that I would want to read for the rest of my life, I think I would choose history. Now, of course, the best fiction is always a treat, but I'm more of a meat-and-potatoes kind of guy than a treat kind of guy. And if I have to choose between history and fiction, I'm just going to choose history every time. Having said that, I do understand why so many people are so unenthralled by the study of history. I get it. Mr. Finkelstein's ninth grade world history class, it did a number on you. It messed you up. You spent so much time memorizing disparate facts and this dynasty and that war and this king and and that queen and those dates. And that's not most people's idea of a good time. But history can be utterly fascinating if studied the right way. If studied the right way, history can plumb the depths of the human experience. If studied the right way, history can climb to the heights of narrative and storytelling. Because history is, of course, one big story. But it's also a million short stories, each one with its own antagonist and protagonist, plot line and plot twist, foreshadows, and surprise endings. Much of history is so incredible, it's built right there into the word, incredible. It's not, we wouldn't believe it if it hadn't actually happened, if somebody hadn't written it down, and praise God they did. The Bible, of course, is a book of history, and many of us have been taught to read the Bible in much the same way that Mr. Finkelstein taught us to study world history. Studying biblical history for many people can lead to homeroom flashbacks. We begin to flinch and tick and tremble as dates and names go whizzing by our heads and we get that faraway look in our eyes, the thousand yard stare and the song Fortunate Son begins to play in the background. This judge and that king and A.D. and B.C. and chronologies and genealogies and this person begat that person and No, 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 make it stop. 
I said I'd never go back. Too many of us have been trained to view the Bible as a big, dry, dusty history textbook. But the story that we are going to look at this morning, which is real history, reads more like a soap opera than a textbook. This morning's story reads like the strange love child of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and a trashy dime store romance novel. Judges chapter 13 through 16 tells us the story of a barren woman and her miraculous conception. It tells us the story of the angel of the Lord, a divine blessing at birth in a warrior's vow. This is the story of schoolboy riddles and murder poetry. This is the story of bride swapping, harlot visitations, and wives who literally nag their husbands to death. This story has it all. Love and lust, deceit and power, manipulation and magic. This story has everything you could possibly want. Firefoxes and donkey bones and a murder-suicide. This morning's story is, of course, the story of Samson, the final judge of Israel, and no hero for us to emulate. A violent, sex-crazed maniac with absolutely no conflict resolution skills who dies literally in a blind rage, all for the sake of of revenge. And yet this is also the story of a man used by God, a God who is bent on accomplishing his good purposes. Friends, the Bible is an old dusty book to those who have never actually read it. The life of Samson is stranger than fiction. And the author of Judges squishes his entire life into four chapters. In this morning's sermon, we're going to consider the entirety of his life in one hour, maybe less, maybe more. You know, true stories are the best stories. So let's dig into this story and find out how good it really is. Let me pray. Father, you have so much in store for us this morning in your word, more than we could ever imagine, more than we could ever even ask for. You're going to do things to us this morning through your word to change us that we can't even comprehend. The seeds that you are going to plant in our heart this morning by the power of your spirit are going to bear fruit in our lives for the sake of holiness that we cannot even contemplate, but we will one day understand when we are with you in heaven. God, bless us this morning. If, if there are d- distractions in the room, God, help protect our hearts and our ears. God, if there is sin in our life that is keeping us from listening to what you have to say to us this morning, cause us to repent right now and to be eager and attentive to your words of grace. If there's some aspect of the gospel that we have yet to comprehend, God, make it clear to us in the preached word this morning. 
And if there's some affection that we don't have for you in our hearts in light of who you are and what you've done for us, we pray that you would stir up our affection so that we would behold you with fresh eyes, so that we would love your glory, so that we would appreciate you more and serve you more faithfully and represent you more accurately to a lost and dying world. God, we pray all these things as beggars, God, we come before you knowing that you are a Father who delights to give us good gifts. So give us every good gift this morning. Amen. Okay. I'm going to give you the points for the sermon as we walk through it. So point number one is the birth of Samson. The birth of Samson. Different people are born into different lots in life. That's just the way it works. Some people are born into comfort. Others are born into conflict. Some people rule, other people are ruled over, such is the plight of fallen humanity. Samson, the anti-hero of this morning's story, was born into a world of conquest. Look over at chapter 15 real quick. We're just going to skip there just so we can understand a little bit about what's happening with Israel in the days of Samson. Chapter 15, verse 11. It says, Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Atom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? We're going to come back to this account in just a minute. But the point is, is that Judah is upset because something has happened that has caused the Philistines, the people who are ruling over Israel, to kind of clamp down. So this is the state of Israel. They are being ruled over by the Philistines. And you'll remember, of course, that the Philistines are the foreigners in the lands. These are the enemies of God's people. These are the pagans. These are the ones that don't know God, and they're not ruling these people justly. The people of Israel are under their thumb as a result of their covenant disobedience. And what we're going to see as we walk through the story is that things in Israel have gotten so bad that the five-part cycle of judges, you know, God, uh, Israel sins, God disciplines, Israel repents, God restores, so on. It's not happening here in the life of Samson. Israel is not repenting. They don't feel sorry for what's happened to them. Things have gotten so bad that they don't even realize how bad things have gotten. Now let's look at chapter 13. Go back with me. Chapter 13, verses 2 through 3. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. This is our introduction to the person of Samson. Born in Zorah, pretty cool nickname, the city of wasps. I wonder what it must have been like to grow up there, huh? Getting stung a lot. It was in the land of Dan. He was born to the wife of Manoah. His mother was barren until the Lord visited her with grace, the gift of a child. And from the outset of Samson's life, it was obvious that he would have a unique place in Israel's history, that he would be different than other men, that he would be used by God. Friends, this is not always the case. Consider 
perhaps the most infamous man in history, Adolf Hitler. In his early life, he was utterly unremarkable. He was born to a lower middle class family in Austria. The, the, the Fuhrer never finished high school. He had an uncanny inability to make friends or even to make enemies. He dodged the draft on at least one occasion. He tried multiple times and failed every time to get into art school. And he, when he finally did end up in the military, he just served as a very average soldier in World War I who got injured and couldn't really keep on fighting. Uh, nobody would have ever looked at young Hitler and thought, hey, there's something to this guy. He's going to change the world. The life of Samson, on the other hand, it began with a miracle. His mother was barren, and then God came and gave Samson, gave Samson life. On top of that, Samson was an obviously excuse me, had an obviously divine calling on his life beyond his birth, right, while he was still in his mother's womb. Look at chapter 13, verses 4 through 5. This is the instruction from the angel to Samson's mom regarding his life. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Listen, if the angel of the Lord tells your mom, while you're still in utero, that you're going to lead your people out from under the harsh hand of your enemies, then you know from a very early age that you're going to be destined for greatness. You know, you think about moms who brag on their kids, oh, look at my little Johnny. Doesn't he play the piano like uh, a little Beethoven? You know, one day he's going to, who knows, right? He's going to be the next Beethoven. I wonder what Samson's parents were like, you know. Look at our little Samson. Look at him picking up that rock. He's going to save Israel. Right? He knew he was destined for greatness. What kind of greatness? Well, that remains to be seen. Now, part of God's calling on Samson's life, as we just read, was that he adopt the Nazarite vows. That is, Samson was to live his life in complete devotion to God's task for him. Now, if you want to read about the Nazarite vows, you can, you can do that later in chapter 21 of Leviticus. These were temporary, and uh, they were entered into voluntarily, but not so for Samson. In Judges chapter 13, Samson is not offered a choice. It's not temporary. It's for his whole life, and he has to do it. When the angel of the Lord tells your mom that you have to do it, you have to do it. And it's so serious that the angel of the Lord tells Samson's mom, even while he's in utero, you must observe all the stipulations of the Nazarite vow. You're under a vow until he comes out of you. That is how serious his calling was to be. Now, look at verses 13 through 14. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, which is Samson's father, Of all that I have said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded, let her observe. So there it is. Samson has to observe it. Mom, you have to observe it. Samson was, before he was born, given a mission. And you can see that in verse 12. Go, down, go up to verse 12. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? 
So Samson's father understood that this visitation from the angel of the Lord, which was giving this, this, this call to Samson's life, that it wasn't for nothing. It was for a mission. Samson had a purpose. And I just can't help but wonder what kind of effect this birth and then subsequent upbringing and these vows and these prophecies, what, they, what effect they must have had on Samson. I mean, think about a child phenom athlete, for example. What happens to the character of a child phenom when from a very early age that child as he grows up as she grows up people are saying oh you're destined for greatness you're going to be this you're going to be that well what usually happens is that the child ends up with a sort of stunted character development right they're entitled they become impulsive they're emotionally stunted And all of that is only made worse when the child is as good as everyone says that they're going to be. There's no humbling that occurs when the child really is that good. And as we're about to see, Samson was in no way humbled by God through this blessing on his life. Rather, he became proud and arrogant by it. His strength, which God bestows on him, was not a source of humility. I'm going to use my strength to do good and help those who are in need. No, he used it to acquire that which his eyes desired. By the time we encounter Samson as an adult, we find a man who has totally and utterly given himself over to his appetites. Which leads me to point number two, the appetite of Samson. Look at chapter 14 with me. Chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now, get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all your people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Friends, here we encounter a Samson who is utterly given over to his carnal appetites. He sees a woman that he wants. He goes to his parents. He makes a demand, get her for me, which is, by the way, totally backwards from the custom of the day. In ancient Israel, if you were going to be married, your father was going to get your wife for you. He was going to be the one to appoint her. But Samson has sort of reversed the authority structure in the family, and he can make demands, and this is what I want, and this is what you need to do for me. Instead of honoring his parents' authority, Samson inverts it, probably due to his strength. On top of that, Samson wants to take a Philistine wife. (coughs) And as we've already seen, That's a no-no. God specifically tells his people, you don't marry people who worship other gods. You cannot marry Philistines. And Samson goes, but I can. Because I see her and I want her, so she's going to be mine. His parents try to reason with him. Oh, Samson, ah, listen, there's a million fish in the sea. Look at all these beautiful young Israelite women. Pick one of those. We can find you one, a really good one, a beautiful one, more beautiful than that one. And Samson goes, I said what I said. This is the one I want. Go get her for me. How can the reasoning of a parent compare with 
the lust of the heart. Now look at verse 8. Chapter 14, verse 8. <coughs> After some days, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. What we see here is that even as Samson indulges his appetite for flesh, he indulges his appetite for food. A little earlier in the story, we didn't read it, but uh, a lion tries to attack Samson. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson. Samson's empowered to defend himself, to kill the lion. But then later he comes back and finds that same lion carcass on the ground. Bees have built a honeycomb. There's honey inside of it. He scrapes the honey out of the dead body and he eats it, which is, of course, a violation of his Nazarite vows. Nazarite vows are pretty simple. Shave your head, don't drink any alcohol, and don't touch unclean things like a dead body. And then there's just the normal stuff you don't do, like you don't marry Philistines. But so far, he's marrying a Philistine, and now he's touching a dead body. But listen, he's not just touching it. He's scraping the insides out of it and then consuming it within himself. It's like the author of Judges wants you to see Samson doesn't care. Samson wants honey. Samson eats honey. And then he's going to bring other people into this. He's going to go give it to his parents. And then Samson's not going to tell his parents where he got the honey. Because Samson knows that what he's doing is wrong. The Samson that we find in chapter 14 behaves less like a human and more like a beast of the field. An animal governed by instincts and impulses. Governed more by the desires that he feels in his flesh than the truth that he knows in his heart. Point number three. The pride of Samson. <coughs> the pride of Samson. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Look at verses 10 through 18. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. For so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Now, let me put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes, which is a pretty big bet in the ancient world. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle, that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife <clears throat> wept over him and said, You only hate me. You don't love me. <coughs> you have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? And she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? 
what is stronger than a lion. And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. So, here's the deal. Samson, he's got a new wife. He's on a sugar high. He's on top of the world. He throws a big celebratory feast, likely a wedding feast. It's well attended. 30 people come down. If you threw a party, would 30 people come? No. Samson, kind of a big deal. Now, the Hebrew word that's used here for feast, it it especially communicates the idea of drinking alcohol. So, in modern parlance, we might use the word like a rager, right? Like a keg party, if you will. And, of course, you'll remember that drinking alcohol is a no-no for a Nazarite. But, hey, listen, once you've married a pagan and eaten honey out of a dead lion's carcass, what's a little wine between friends? Uh, Samson, in uh, constant need of stimulation, the, the feast is not enough, the drunkenness is not enough, the friends are not enough. He comes up with a riddle. A riddle that in his mind is so clever, it's worth betting on. So Samson goads his guests into the bet, and he says, if you can guess the riddle in seven days, which would be the length of the feast, (coughs) you'll owe me, and you'll owe me big. But if not, I'll owe you. So what do you think, guys? Can you figure out the riddle? Are you in? And they say they're in. And apparently Samson was right. His evaluation of his riddle was correct. It was a a stumper. (coughs) The guests of the feast, they couldn't figure it out. And they were not happy that they could not figure it out. They were starting to feel like they were getting set up. Did you just throw this whole feast that you could invite us here and tell us this impossible? Like, it feels like Samson's a little bit of a pool shark. But instead of a pool table, it's a riddle. They're not happy about what's going on here. And so what do they do? They go to his wife, which happens to be their relatives. Come here, listen, let's talk. You need to go to him. And you need to find out the answer to this riddle. And if you don't, we'll burn you alive. Crazy party. Now, (coughs) the feast lasted seven days, and Samson's wife, starting on the fourth day, she spent the rest of the time nagging him for the answer. She's weeping, she's crying, don't you love me? And Samson, I didn't even tell my parents, and I don't care about your parents, I'm more important than your parents, don't you love me? The text says that she pressed him hard, which is a really compact way of talking about four days of that kind of melodrama. And finally, Samson gives in. He's a mighty man in his physical strengths, but who can resist seven days, or four days really, of incessant nagging? And so here's how the story goes. Samson tells his wife the answer. She finds a way to tell the men of the city the answer, and the men of the city go to Samson and tell him the answer and win the bet. And then Samson calls his wife uh, a heifer, which we should never do. (laughs) Application for today's sermon. Don't ever call your wife a heifer. Now, (coughs) Samson obviously was livid. He made a big bet, right? This is high risk, but high reward. And he lost. Mm, No matter. The price of the bet doesn't cost Samson a thing. Look down at verses 19 through 20. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments of those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, 
he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Listen, when you're Samson, you do what you want, okay? You marry who you want, you eat what you want, you drink what you want, and you take what you want from whomever you want, even if you have to kill 30 people in order to do it. So, after killing these people and robbing them blind, Samson heads home to have a fight with his wife. Do you know how many people I had to kill and rob because of you? Classic husband-wife tiff. What were you thinking? That kind of thing. But wouldn't you know it, when Samson got home, his wife had already been given to his best man. Which leads us to point number four, the revenge of Samson. The revenge of Samson. (coughs) Look at chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. So apparently things have calmed down a little bit. Samson's ready to, okay, you did give away my secret, but we can do this. Here's a goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. Guys, it's like they always say, if you marry a Philistine, you can't be surprised when your in-laws take your wife away, give her to your best man, and try to replace her with her younger sister. It's the common saying. Samson is obviously not pleased about this new arrangement when he finds out. He feels like he is justified in attacking the Philistines for what they've done. Look at verse (coughs) 3. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. As if to say there have been other times where I know I've done wrong and I wasn't innocent, but this time I am innocent. And so Samson, he sets the world on fire, if you will. Look at verses 4 through 8. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes, impressive, and took torches. <coughs> and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each, one of the, uh, each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Atom. This is no light thing that Samson has done in setting fire to the wheat fields. In setting fire to the wheat fields and the olive trees, Samson has effectively destroyed the food supply of tens of thousands of people. This obviously angers the Philistines, who respond by going and finding his wife and her father and burning them alive. Samson, when he finds out about this, says, okay, you know what, guys? The gloves are off. 
I swear I'm going to take revenge on all you Philistines. And then he attacks them real quick, and then he goes and he flees to the cave. He had to kind of regroup. Now look at verses 9 through 11. <coughs> then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We have come up to bind Samson and to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Atom and said to Samson, Do you not know what the Philistines, excuse me, that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. The fallout from the fires is not over. The Philistines continue their rampage. What they do is they end up going to the land of Judah. They can't get Samson, so they go to the people that they can get. They go to Judah, and they attack Judah. And naturally, Judah wants to know why. So Judah asks the Philistines, Hey, Philistines, I thought things were going good. We, we had a muy simpatico relationship going on here. Why, out of nowhere, are you coming to attack us? And the Philistines respond, Because of Samson and what he did to us. And so Judah goes, don't worry, we'll take care of this. And they go to Samson, and they say, Samson, what's the deal, man? We were kind of living in peace. It wasn't ideal, but it was peaceful. How could you do this? And Samson says, hey, man, I just did to them what they did to me, which is not true. Nevertheless, that's what he says. Now look at the end of verse 10 one time. Let's just look at the very end of verse 10 at the end of verse 11. At the end of verse 10, it says, We have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. That's what the Philistines are saying. The pagans, the people who do not know God, we're here to do to him. We're here for revenge. Now look at verse 11 again. At the very end, after the people of Judah are talking with Samson, it says, "What uh, What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so have I done to them. You see what's happening here? Samson, he thinks he's justified. He thinks he has the moral and ethical high ground. But the truth of the matter is, is that he's acting just like his enemies. The Philistines say, we're here to do violence so we can get our revenge. And Samson says, I'm doing violence so I can get my revenge. Their ethic has become his ethic and he cannot even see it. So here's the deal. Samson's hiding out in the cave. He thinks he's saved. Judah comes, finds him, talk to him, interrogate him, and finally they convince him to go back to the Philistines with them. Hey, Samson, we don't want to fight, but we will. We'll take you if we have to, but don't make us do that. Just come peacefully with us. And Samson agrees. And this is where things get really crazy. Look at verses 14 through 16. <coughs> When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand and took it. And with it he struck one thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, With the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down 
a thousand men. So apparently Samson had ulterior motives. He said, yeah, I'll go with you. But he knew when he got there that it was going to be a problem. And it was a problem. He breaks the, the, the chains that bind him. He grabs a fresh uh, jawbone of a donkey and he uses it as a primitive knife and he kills a thousand Philistines. And then he sits down and writes a poem about it. Roses are red, violets are blue, I'll stab you to death with a donkey bone. (laughs) Really ahead ahead of his time. Point number five, the love of Samson. Uh, Every sappy, romantic movie, rom-com, Casablanca, doesn't matter, all of them begin with something called a meet-cute. If you've never heard of a meet-cute, it's an amusing or charming first encounter between the two love interests in the movie. And if you've seen any of these movies, you basically know how it goes, right? Like, Jack bumps into Jill in the hallway He's flustered, she's flustered, all of her papers fall to the ground. He goes down on the ground to help her pick up the papers. As he's grabbing a paper, her hand's there, his hand touches her hand. They kind of pause and look up into each other's eyes and laugh. And he goes, hey, want to get some coffee later? And that's the beginning of the end. That is a meet-cute. I bet you didn't know that the concept of a meet-cute comes right from the book of Judges, right here in Judges chapter 16. Look at Judges chapter 16, verse 1 with me. (coughs) Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute and went into her. Okay, that's not a meet-cute. Kind of the opposite, really. (laughs) Kind of the opposite. Now, What we see here is that Samson, once again, is given over to his carnal desires, right? Samson is like, listen, I just killed a thousand dudes, you know, i stressed out, need some stress relief. I'm going to go into a brothel. And when you're Samson, you don't just go somewhere without people realizing it. So as soon as Samson gets there, people realize Samson is in the town. The Philistine killer is here, and he's holed up in a local brothel. So what do the locals do? They set up an ambush. But the ambush fails. Samson, he steps out of the brothel, he flexes on his attackers, he tears out the city gates and the posts, and he runs up the hill with it. And all the people who were planning on attacking him go, oh, okay, maybe we'll wait till backup arrives, you know? Now, I told you guys one really cool little factoid there about the meat cute. I've got another cool little factoid for you. Are you ready? The best country music is inspired by stories in the Old Testament. For example, Johnny Lee, you guys know who I'm talking about, the award-winning Grammy country artist who wrote the song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places, he wrote that song after reading Judges chapter 16, verses 4 through 6. It's true, look there. Judges chapter 16, verses 4 through 6. After this, that's after that whole brothel experience, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him. 
and that we may bind him to humble him. And he will each, excuse me, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Friend, Samson was looking for love, and unfortunately for him, he found it in another Canaanite woman who was on the payrolls of his enemies. How much did his enemies want to kill him? They were offering 1,100 pieces of silver per person. Even if there's just like three people there, that's a massive bounty on his head. The Philistines used Delilah to try to get Samson to expose the source of his strength so that they can finally do what they need to do to take him out. And Delilah, she tries over and over and over again to get Samson to give up his secret. You can read about that later in verses 7 through 14. But what Samson does is he plays a little cat and mouse game with her, okay? And this is how it goes. There's a a cycle. Delilah will nag Samson. Samson will lie to Delilah, which makes sense, right? Given Samson's history of, you know, trying to keep a secret and a woman finding out about it and then exposing him and ruining him, he's a little suspicious. (coughs) Samson loves Delilah but doesn't trust her. So he lies. Delilah will test Samson. The test will fail, proving that he lied. And then they will go through this again. Rinse, wash, repeat. Now, look at verse 15. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. Delilah wants to know. And now she's bringing out the big guns. If you've ever been in a toxic relationship before, verse 15 feels very familiar. How can you say you love me and still do this to me? How can you, how can you? And Samson might reply, how can you say that you love me as you're trying to uncover my secret? This is a very toxic relationship. And if you're wondering how Samson could be so foolish as to stay in such an obviously unhealthy relationship, well, the answer is quite simple. Samson is a fool. These are two messed up people. Now look at verses 16 and 17. (coughs) And when she pressed him hard, same language from earlier with his wife, and when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And here we see the beginning of the end for Samson. And the beginning of the end begins with his love interest literally nagging him to the point of his death. Delilah knew exactly how to push Samson's buttons until finally he told her his secret. And then she, in turn, tells his enemies. Look at verse 21. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in prison. In chapter 14, we are told that when Samson wanted to marry his Philistine wife, that he did so because she was right in his eyes. And here we see what that has led to. In a terrible twist of irony, 
the man who does whatever seems right in his own eyes has his eyes ripped out of his head. We find Samson spending the remaining days of his life doing horrific manual labor, shackled, imprisoned by his enemies. Now look at verses 23 through 27. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and rejoice. Now, just pause right here. I want you to notice what the Philistines are doing as they call Samson out. They are offering a sacrifice to their god. They are rejoicing in their god. And they're saying, our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. This is a prayer of praise. Oh, Dagon, great and mighty, powerful and wonderful, kind and benevolent, he who hears our prayers when we are facing our enemies, he who answers when we are in need, we praise you, we lift up your name. And when the people saw him, that is when they saw Samson, captive, broken, low, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hands, the ravage of our country who has killed so many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I might lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Friends, we are at the end of Samson's life. What started off as something so hopeful, so potentially bright, a divine blessing from God, on his mother's womb, and on his life, a potential ministry. It seems like all of that has evaporated into thin air. We find a life that seems, well, the perfect tragedy. We find a man who has been blinded, who is imprisoned, and who is now being called out to entertain his captors like some kind of carnival freak as they put on their own worship service. Now let's look at verses 28 through 31. When Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength. And the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. In the end, Samson kills over 3,000 of his enemies in the most spectacular murder-suicide perhaps ever recorded certainly of the ancient world. And even as he does it, he's still hell-bent on revenge. 
let me bring this house down so that I might take revenge on the Philistines. Now, the book of Judges is dark. It's, it's so dark, and it feels like as we move through the book of Judges, we just expect that eventually we're going to start seeing the light, right? It, it can't be dark forever. Eventually, as we make our way through this dark cave, <coughs> we're expecting the pinprick of light to, to show up off in the distance, and then as we move closer and closer to it, we're going to see it open and open and open until we finally step out into the fresh air and the bright sun. Man, this feels like the opposite of what happens in the book of Judges. It seems like the light is moving further and further and further away from us. Samson's life is dark, and it seems to just be getting darker and darker and darker, and it seems like the darkest, the darkness never lets up. Or does it? The story of Samson's life reads like an ancient Hebrew soap opera. Not exactly the version of Samson that you heard growing up in Sunday school, I'm sure. This is God's mighty warrior. In the story of Samson, we see the lust of man, the deceit of woman, the vengeance of the nations, all playing out in the minds of the people in this story according to their own will and purpose. But, underneath all of that, all their planning, all their scheming, all their thinking, all their plotting, all of the exercise of their will, we find the invisible hand of God working and willing His own good purposes. Uh, turn back to chapter 14 real quick. Just one, one flip of the page. I'll tell you the verse here in a second. <coughs> You remember, of course, that the main issue with Samson and his marriage to the Philistine woman was that it was against the law of God, right? His parents knew that. They tried to reason with him. They counseled him, son, please walk in obedience, reign in your desires. But Samson wouldn't listen. (coughs) And it is here in chapter 14, towards the very beginning of the story of Samson's life, that we actually find the key to unlocking the entire life of Samson and what it means in the drama of redemption. Look at chapter 14, verse 4. His father and mother, even though they were reasoning with him to try to not marry this Philistine woman, they did not know that it, his marriage to this Philistine woman, was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Friends, it should be pretty obvious to us at this point, but it bears repeating again. The story of Samson is not about Samson. The story of Samson is about God. And the God that we encounter in the life of Samson is a God who sovereignly uses the sins of Samson, the faults of Samson, the brokenness of Samson, the rebellion of Samson, to defeat the enemies of Israel and to bring justice against the Philistines. You have to remember the context. We just read it in verse 4. The people of Israel are being ruled over by the Philistines. This was not God's good plan for their life. God's good plan for their life was to go into the promised land, get everyone out of the promised land, worship Him faithfully, and live at peace. 
But they sinned. They rebelled. They are suffering the consequences of that. But by the time we get to, to the end of the book of Judges, by the time we get to Samson, the last judge in the book, we find a, the people of Israel, they've grown complacent. They've stopped fighting. They don't care. You know, up to this point, whenever people would come into the land and try to overtake them and try to rule over them, they'd fight back. At this point, it, it just seems like they're willing to accept what's happened to them. They're willing to live in subjugation. They're willing to worship the false gods of the Philistines. You know, all right, Dagon. We'll do Dagon, you know. They've made peace with the enemy. <coughs> By the time you get to Samson, it feels like the entire nation of Israel has sort of just given up like an animal in the snow. So cold it just can't move, willing to lay down and die. And friends, if the God of the Bible were any less faithful to Israel, that is exactly what would happen. He would let them lay down and die. He would let them give themselves over to the Canaanites and the Philistines. He would just let this syncretizing happen. But God is utterly faithful to his promises. And so what does he do? He rises up and he declares to his people, that not even their own sins can prevent him from keeping his covenant promises. God's invisible hand has been at work the entire time. God's invisible hand has been at work in the life of Samson to rescue Israel from her enemies and really to rescue Israel from herself. Now we have to remember, of course, that when the text says that that God brought this to pass, that, that God is not causing Samson <coughs> to do any of this evil that he's doing. He's merely removing his hand of restraint, right? You have to remember, friends, that if God ever completely removed his hand of restraint, we would all be much, much worse than we are, right? We would all be Hitler. We would all be Stalin. We would all be Mao. We would all be Pol Pot. As it is, even for those who don't know God, his common grace is working restraint in the world to prevent the world from just burning up with evil. So God allows Samson to do what his heart is already inclined to do. And then he uses his evil inclinations, Samson's evil inclinations, for his own good purposes. Listen to Proverbs 16.9. This will kind of tell you how this works a little bit. The text says, <clears throat> The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Samson was planning his way. I'm going to have sex with this person. I'm going to marry that person. I'm going to eat this food. I'm going to drink that drink. Yeah, this is what I'm going to do. But the Lord was establishing his steps in a way that he couldn't even begin to comprehend. Proverbs 19.21 tells us this. There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, nevertheless, don't move too quickly over that word. The counsel of the Lord shall stand. If you've ever thought, well, Sean, you know, God, yes, he's sovereign, but my will, my desires, my, God would never, yes, he would. You have your devices, but he has his counsel. So whatever's going on in your heart, 
in some way that you can't even understand. It's not even working for what you want. It's working for what God wants. And if you're a Christian, man, that's the best news in the world. Friends, this is the God we serve. A God who is so committed to saving his people that he doesn't just to save them despite their sin. He saves them through their sin. God is using Samson's sin to save the people of Israel. What the people of Israel really needed was a righteous hero. They needed a man to rise up who would not go to visit the prostitute, who would say, okay, God, your word says I shouldn't marry this woman. My parents are counseling me that I shouldn't. I'll listen to them. I'll obey you. They needed a man who could look at that honey and say, hmm, that looks really good, but you know what? I know it's not going to be good for my soul. They needed a true hero, not an anti-hero, but they didn't have that. And so what does God do? He uses their sin to destroy sin. And this is the drama of redemption. Out of death comes life. Out of trash comes beauty. Out of defeat comes glory. Out of sin comes salvation. God does what we can never do. He fights fire with fire, and he puts the fire out. There are three times in the life of Samson that we read about the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon Samson, and two of them are very troubling to us. The first is when the the lion uh, comes and tries to attack him, right? And Samson fights him off and kills him. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. And that one makes sense. Like, yeah, you got to protect your guy, you know? The second one is <coughs> a little more troubling for us. It's when, Phil, uh, when Samson loses the, the bet based on the riddle, and in order to pay the bet, he goes down and kills all the people in the village of Ashkelon. It says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson, and then he went and did those things. And we read that, and we think, did the Spirit of the Lord rush upon Samson so that he would be able to go get the bounty to pay off his bet? Did, did the Lord empower Samson to do these terrible and evil things? Well, no. Friends, you have to remember, it only seems terrible and evil to us if we don't understand the entire context. The entire context is that the, Ashkelon, uh, the people of Ashkelon were evil. They were unjust. They were idolaters. They would throw their babies into the fires as sacrifices to their gods. They were oppressing the people of God. They were the Hitlers of the ancient world. Now, did Samson know this? In Samson's heart, was he like, listen, I lost the bet, but I'm going to go kill these people because God's going to use me as an instrument of his justice. No, but God knew that. God knew what was going on in Samson's heart and he was still going to use it and direct it for his own good purposes. The third time (coughs) that the Spirit of the Lord rushes on Samson is also when he kills people. He kills a thousand Philistines in revenge and in a rampage like none other. And again, you have to remember the Spirit of the Lord is not empowering Samson here so that Samson can get revenge. The Lord is empowering Samson because these Philistines had it coming. And I don't, I don't mean to sound trite or flippant when I say that. I mean, these Philistines were evil. They deserved to be punished. Their blood should have been shed so that justice might be accomplished in the land. Wouldn't it be great if God could have used a righteous warrior in order to accomplish that? Yes, there was no righteous warrior. So God used Samson, the unrighteous warrior. What Samson intended for evil, God meant for good. 
<coughs> as you read the story of Samson's life, you see that the Lord, when you understand this key from verse 4, you understand that the Lord is behind the scenes working sovereignly to use every bad thing, every evil thing, everything that when we read it, oh, we kind of cringe. He's using all of that to bring about his good purposes. Samson's rebellion against his parents' authority, his parents' sinful acquiescence to his carnal desires, his marriage to a Canaanite woman, his eating of the honey out of the unclean uh, carcass, his drunken debauchery, his feasting with the enemies, his gambling, his murder, his theft, his father-in-law's attempted wife swap, his revenge rampages, the Philistine murder of his wife and father-in-law, Judah's treacherous compliance with the Philistines, Samson's time with the prostitute, his falling in love with Delilah, the conniving of the Philistines, the deception of Delilah, the nagging of Delilah, the betrayal of Delilah, the torture and imprisonment of Samson, and finally, the suicide of Samson and the murder of 3,000 Philistines. All of these terrible things in the hand of a good God, working together to accomplish His perfect purposes. And friends, His purposes are twofold. The first purpose is the salvation of His people. Salvation of His people. Romans 8.28, it's, it's one of our favorite Bible verses precisely because it highlights in big, bold colors this good purpose. It, it kind of captures in one verse everything that we've talked about. Go ahead and turn there with me. Romans chapter 8. <coughs> you have to remember, friends, that when God inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words, the Apostle Paul didn't exist in a vacuum. It's just, you know, him and God in a dark room together, right? No, God is inspiring Paul to draw from the deep wellsprings of his understanding of the Old Testament. And it's stories like the story of Samson that informed Paul theologically as he wrote these words in Romans 8.28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things, I could just go back and reread that list, right? Everything from the, the life of Samson, all things, everything, including all the bad things, work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, this is one of the most precious promises for us in the Bible. All things work together for the good of those who are called. This is good news for Israel. Every bad thing that's happened to them in the day of Judges, it's working together for God and His good purposes in Israel. It's true of us today. Cancer, abuse, addiction, war, famine, persecution, inflation, poverty, setbacks and sanctification, fights with fellow church members, just add it all up. Any one of those things is bad, and yet it's working for your good. All of those things taken together are extremely bad, and yet they're working for our good. God is sovereign over it all. Friends, I want you to understand that by God's grace, there is no such thing as a bad thing that can happen to you. Do you understand that? In light of eternity, I mean, in light of eternity, no bad thing can happen to you. According to the gospel, we who belong to Christ are untouchable. 
Now, there's a, a flip side to Romans 8.28, which is more in line with God's second purpose, the punishing of his enemies. And I wonder if you, in order to get there, you just have to do some kind of mere logic, some implicit reasoning, right? If all things are working together for the good of those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose, well, then the opposite is also true. All things work together against those who are not called according to his purpose. And in this story, we see that to be true. We see all things working together for the good of Israel and all things working together for the destruction of the Philistines. In the end, Samson, he he wasn't a redeemer. He wasn't a reformer. He wasn't even a rescuer. He was a, a partial rescuer. The text tells us twice, twice. That's meaningful. It stops like right halfway through the story of Samson and it says this like, hey, he judged Israel for 20 years. And then at the end of his life it says, Samson judged Israel for 20 years. But look at chapter 13, verse 1. Flip back there. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Samson was only a judge for half of the time that the people of Israel were under the thumb of the Philistines. Uh, I was recently, I'm getting, I'm going to go preach in, uh, in D.C. in a little while, and uh, they were, they're preparing their order of service in advance, which we'll never do. <laughs> but uh, they were saying, hey, could you send me the title for the sermon you're going to preach to us? And I was like, oh, I forgot churches do that. Right? I've never titled a sermon. If I were to title this sermon, the title would be Samson, the story of a halfway savior. And I think it should be obvious, friends, that a halfway savior is no savior at all. Turn with me real quick to Judges chapter 13, verse 5. Oh, well, you should already be there. Chapter 13, verse 5. This is once again the, the, the oracle given to Samson's parents about his life and birth. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor, sh- razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be uh, a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. He shall begin to save Israel. You see, friends, Samson, he just couldn't do it. He couldn't accomplish the complete in total salvation of the people. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. (coughs) Chapter 1, verse 21. This is an oracle also from an angel, to the mother of Jesus. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
Friends, Jesus is no halfway Savior. He will, without a doubt, save us, His people. He will utterly save us. He will save us to the utmost. He will save every last one of us. There is no exception. No one falls away. No one ends up behind the pack. His salvation cannot be stopped. There is no fact in the entire universe in which you can have greater confidence than the fact that Jesus will save his people. Jesus is no Samson. There is no one that Jesus can't save. Samson was strong according to the flesh, but he was so spiritually weak. Jesus, on the other hand, was weak according to the flesh. But he is mighty to save. Samson stretched out his arms to take revenge on his enemies. But Jesus stretched out his arms to save his enemies. Jesus, like Samson, died in utter disgrace. But Samson could not come out from under the stones that took his life away. But Jesus rose up on the third day and moved that stone right on out of the way. Jesus is our total Savior. And not just the Savior of Israel. The Savior of the entire world. Friends, if you're looking for a fairy tale, you won't find it here in the book of Judges. If you want the once upon a time, and then happily ever after, you're, you're not going to find it in Judges 16. But you will find it in Mark 16, where the disciples find the empty tomb of Jesus and see with their own two eyes that God has used all things, including the death of His Son, for good. In closing, I just want to encourage you to consider your life. If your life feels like the life of Samson, you just feel like it's just bleaker and, and, and darker and blacker and it seems like the light is never coming. The answer for you is not to try harder. It's not to be more moral. It's not to come to church more. It's not to, to give more, to read your Bible more. All those things are helpful. The answer is to look to the one who has already accomplished salvation on your behalf. You are weak like Samson. You cannot save anyone. Jesus is mighty mightier than anyone or anything ever. He is God of the universe, and He can save you. And if you want to come out of the black abyss of judges and into the bright light of the resurrection, all you have to do is right here, right now, in your heart, say, God, I don't want that anymore. What I want is you. It's not an accident that God set up Samson's life so that at the very end, he brings down the house, kills all the Philistines, even as they're worshiping their false god. Well, friends, my prayer is that in a more metaphorical sense, in light of what we've read and, 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 and seen today in God's word, that as we worship God, we will bring down the house. Let me pray, and then Luke will come up and lead us. Father, we asked you at the beginning of this sermon to bless us, and you have. And you've blessed us in ways that we cannot even comprehend as we sit here. We pray that this sermon will not uh, be light in our hearts. We pray that it'll stay with us, that we'll remember the true story of Samson, 
We pray that you'll help us to discuss what we've learned today over lunch, that we'll talk about it with our spouses and our children in our homes, and that uh, the way that you've shaped us and changed us through this sermon will affect us for the rest of our lives until you call us home. In your son's name we pray, amen.